You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everyone and welcome to a very special episode of both Upzoned and the Strong Towns podcast. We are joining forces this week to do something really, really unique. We are going to be going through the brand new book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity by Charles L. Marone Jr., who you might know better as Chuck, who is my friend, my colleague, my co-host on Upzone most weeks, and also just a really awesome guy who wrote a book that I loved, and I'm really excited to share it with you. I have the privilege of kicking off what's going to be a longer series of actually every chapter in the book is going to be dissected and talked about in depth by Chuck and a member of our team. Today, we're going to be talking about chapters one and two, but we're also going to give you the like overview, the big picture aerial over what this book is, why it's so good, and what you can expect when you read it. So I'm ready to kick it off. But first, let me welcome our guest of honor, our author, Chuck. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Thank you for thank you for all this, and thanks for being the uh, the kickoff for this whole thing. It it means a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited that I got to do it. So I have so much to dive into in this book. I am just ready to go. So we're actually just going to start rather with chapter starting with chapter one. I want to ask you, Chuck, when people ask you what is your first book about, what do you tell them? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think this is where my wife starts to roll her eyes. Uh, she's like, you got to say it differently than that. Because I say it's about this movement that we've built. It's about this body of knowledge that we, and, and I say we in a very big, big sense, we've created at Strong Towns, starting with an understanding of why our cities are struggling. And then this really what's been a decades long exploration about, okay, what do we do about that? So it's kind of like when I'm with my kids and they're like their friends say, what does your dad do? And they're like, oh, he writes a lot. <laughs> he talks about cities. I feel like this is a little bit bigger than that. It's, a, it's about humans. It's about the places that we've evolved uh, to be our habitat. It's about how we walked away from that and why, understanding why we, we made those changes. And then what we lost and how we start to, to get it back. So the history of man and yeah. the future of man in, you know, a little over 200 pages, no big deal. Well, I will say you kind of achieved that. And let's actually just dive right into chapter one here because I just think there's so much to cover. Chapter one is actually called human habitat, which I think like you read that as a strong towns fan and you're like, yeah, human habitat. But I think that's actually a pretty radical reimagining of what we mean when we say the word cities. Let's just like really unpack that notion. Why is it important that we today shift from thinking about cities as things that we build, design, and like rigidly control something that we've made to cities is just habitats for the animal we call human beings. Right. I was fortunate enough to have some ecological training in school. It was, it was one of those things where I, I, I just took some elective classes because I found natural ecosystems to be fascinating. When you study creatures in ecosystems, 
what you discover is that they're very much not like machines. You, you can't just go out and plant uh, bamboo and have pandas show up. You know, you, you can't just go put seals under the ice and, and have polar bears. There's so much more to it. When we look at ecosystems with, with creatures and animals and, and plants, we tend to understand this or at least respect it, that there's all this kind of weird, spooky things going on, different symbiotic relationships between multiple different species, uh, between you know different types of habitats. I remember in grad school, there was this conversation about animals that thrive in edge habitat and animals that need uh, thick like core habitat. So when you fragment like a farm field, uh, or you fragment a forest with roads, what you do is you might have you know a large amount that is forest, but it's fragmented now. And so a lot more of it becomes edge and those core species struggle. When you start to grasp that, you realize that these relationships between the animals and the plants and each other is the byproduct of millions of years of evolution, millions of years of like incremental changes over time that not only addresses how the animal gets food and how they reproduce, uh, which is kind of like the two things we often look at, but how they experience uh, their social interactions with each other. In the case of like some of the work that's been done with, with chimpanzees and gorillas, how they they fall in love with each other and how they enjoy each other's company. And so you can look at like bees and understand very clearly that like a bee outside of a hive, or if you took a hive and redid it, it, it wouldn't fit the bees. The beehive has actually highly evolved to respond to the needs of bees. We are evolved from these same kind of things and we've created the same kind of habitat. We actually built places that responded not just to our immediate needs of getting food and, and reproducing, but to many other basic human needs that we have. How do we protect ourselves? How do we work together collaboratively? How do we bind together as a culture to reflect like greater values that, that will help us overcome and, and, and be a, a society that, you know, in a sense, maybe triumphs or leads in competition with other societies? These are like base things in our evolutionary past that were reflected in the places we built. I've always respected that we threw away a lot of wisdom from an architecture standpoint and from a planning standpoint. But it wasn't until I started digging into and really like meditating a lot on the ecology part and the, the human psychology part that I started to respect how spooky this thing we built, the city, and how this habitat is really made for us and how we kind of threw it away. And a, a lot of the lack of mooring sometimes that we feel or the, or the anxiety that we feel is really a byproduct of the fact that we're living in places that are not designed for us, are, have not been built by us with us in mind. And yet they were built by us is what's so strange about this. But, you know, by way of reflecting about the present day. Let, let's just keep on our sort of uh, our multi-century journey that we are on and 
Talk about the spooky wisdom that you are referring to. So you've got a section in chapter one that I think is just dynamite about the things that our ancestors knew that we seem to have forgotten and why we really should be listening in on them. So you talked about our habitats evolving with us as we went through the Cro-Magnon period and we were all gnawing on mastodon bones or whatever we were doing back then. And in continuing as we started to build cities, what wisdom did that version of humanity have that we have forgotten today? Let's point out that the answer really is more than we know, um, and certainly more than I know, and certainly more that can be expressed in a book. Um, I think the whole concept of spooky wisdom is stuff that is essentially embedded in us that we don't even know exists. Years and years ago, I stumbled across and became fascinated with some of the architectural concepts that were employed in Disney World and the different theme parks. And I started to read about the things that they did to build these onstage kind of presence. They had studied, in a sense, not only the way great cities were built, um, but they had studied how humans react to certain things. There's a book I have right here in front of me on my desk called The Architecture of Reassurance. And the architecture of reassurance is how do we build things and place things in these theme parks that are designed to comfort people and make them feel comfortable in that space and, and essentially reassure them that life is good and they're happy and, and they can exist here and, and be comfortable. When you go through that a book like that and you start to look at it and then you turn around and look at the city that you live in, especially if it is a city with some older DNA or if you, like I use the example in my book, travel back to Pompeii and you know the ruins that have been covered up by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, you start to see this stuff everywhere. It's, it's kind of relegated to Disney theme parks today in some ways, but really there's vestiges of it all over the place. Anne Sussman in that book, Cognitive Architecture, and I interviewed her earlier this year on the Strong Towns podcast, we talked about Thigmataxis which is an, a concept I'd never heard of, but just is intuitive in planning fields. Jane Jacobs wrote about how humans are wall-hugging creatures. And in the pattern language, Christopher Alexander says the same thing. He says, we tend to walk along the edges. And when you design places with edges, it will enhance walkability. People will, will get around more. They'll feel more comfortable. And you're like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. But then Ann Sussman points out that like, no, this is actually like a microbial feature. You can think of a, a mouse scurrying along the edge of a wall. They don't run out in the center. Or a deer on the edge of a field. They, they don't run out in the center. They stick to the edge. If you look at microbes in a Petri dish, they will have kind of a, a random pattern to them. They'll be going all over the place. But if you put a metal bar in there, all of a sudden they will line up and they will hug that bar and then travel around it kind of in the same direction. They're wall hugging. Darwin pointed out that evolution is a conservative process. And by conservative, what he means is that it tends to conserve winning strategies and build off them incrementally. So at some point in the past, and, and uh, I, I think with Ann Sussman's research, we're suggesting the ancient, ancient microbial past of the evolution of species, wall hugging was a beneficial characteristic. The creatures who hugged walls tended to do better than the ones that didn't. And that tendency has been passed down and we witness it in mammals and in other animal species. We witness it all over the place as a recurring characteristic. And then we step back and we realize that somewhere in our brain stems 
is something that's telling us you are more comfortable when you hug walls. And then you step back and look at your street and realize that the people who built these places hundreds of years ago, the people who first built my little hometown here at Brainerd, what did they do? They lined up the buildings and they formed them into walls. They spaced them at just the right spacing so that they didn't feel too constrained, but they didn't feel too wide where you lost the edge. They did this over and over in all their neighborhoods, whether they were predominantly commercial or predominantly residential. And you can start to recognize and understand that, yes, this was the pattern that evolved. And yes, there were many other things that this pattern did. But if you just look at that one like primal brainstem kind of function of building something that is comforting and soothing to us, here's stigmataxis. That's what they did. The spooky wisdom. The more that I've studied this and the more that I've gotten into this, the more humble it's made me about what I actually know. The spooky wisdom is that over many thousands of years, as this habitat was being assembled and evolved and iterated and expanded, what humans did is they harmonized many competing things that they had. The need to feel comfortable walking down the street was one. The need to feel that you could secure your place by everybody kind of having their entrance facing the street. So you all kind of watched over each other. The need to help care for the young and care for the elderly. Uh, the need to, to put important cultural landmarks, you know, be it a, a church or a synagogue or a temple or what have you, at the center of, of life and, and kind of frame your street so that it magnified the, the grandeur of those buildings and kind of tied your culture together. All these things are subtle little design things that I think when we look at it through just a plain architecture lens or a plain engineering lens, we don't grasp the full complexity of what people built and why they built it that way. Here's the spooky thing. They didn't grasp it either. (laughs) They just copied what had been handed down to them. They just very much like bees building a hive. They just kind of understood, here's how you build places for humans. You know, it's so spooky, right? And, you know, people who had no access to words like thingamataxis or whatever you just Thingamataxis, yeah. <laughs> um, whatever it was. I can't even remember it now. Certainly didn't have access to a microscope. Certainly don't have access to, you know, the disciplines of psychology as we know them. Knew to talk about my favorite diagram in the whole book to build a house generally with the proportions of a human face, right? So I love Isn't that, that funny? Isn't that <laughs> like that, that would be yeah. comforting? You have this cute little diagram in the book of like a little house with eyes where windows generally are and not a lot of space on either side. And then you show a split level house where it's got like this big goiter at the side and the face is all crowded onto one. And it's a silly little drawing. I'm sure someone will get a tattoo of it someday. But it really shows the way that humans have instinctive knowledge about the way that places should work and that there is something to that. So here's the question though. What does all this have to do with the project of building strong towns? right? This is where we need to start building our bridges. You talk in in chapter one about a complicated and a complex problem. And, you know, this might seem like a bit of a leap, but why don't you tell me a little bit about how are our cities complex problems and why does that matter if we want them to be strong? Complex adaptive systems have emergent properties. When we talk about things and we frame things in terms of habitat, what you're looking at are feedback loops internally 
that balance and harmonize all these competing objectives over time. We have a need to comfort these primal urges by having edge conditions, but we also have these other needs too. Like we have to be able to, to get places. We have to be able to dispose of our, our sewage. Um, we've got to be able to, you know, get rid of our garbage and grow food. We have all these competing interests. And so one interest doesn't completely dominate the interests kind of balance each other out and harmonize. And, and out of that, let's call it stress to put a, the, the negative spin on it as opposed to harmonizing, which is a more positive spin. But let's, let's focus on the stress part of it. There's all this give and take that happens inside this habitat. And that emerges this order. And, and, and this is why, quite frankly, while the layout and design of cities prior to this great suburban experiment is very, very similar around the world, we can go to very early, early cultures. Uh, we can go to different continents, different latitudes. We see different architecture and we see buildings that are, are, are going to be designed different. And we see, you know, subtleties in the layouts. All of this stuff are local adaptations. Uh, they're local adaptations designed to respond to the stresses that were experienced in that place. They're the, they're the adaptation to the habitat that, for example, makes the Italian village, the, uh, the small Italian town, uh, different than the Nordic village. We sometimes reduce that. We have a redux down to architecture styles and your tastes. Um, and it's really not. The, these things were designed for their place and evolved in that place to deal with very specific needs that were beyond just aesthetics. So when we look at systems like this, we recognize that they have these emergent properties, these complex adaptive properties. When we study complex systems, there's a phenomena, there's a phase shift that happens. When they're essentially given abundant resources, what we see is that they shift from being complex to being merely complicated. And let's define complicated a little bit. Complicated systems cease to have feedback to them. Um, they cease to respond to stress. They cease to have emergent properties. You can think of, uh, I think as a, as a way to visualize this, you can think of a machine like an automobile engine as a complicated system. No one's going to say a, a, an automobile engine is simple. It's very complicated, but what it's not is complex. It doesn't adapt and evolve. If you stress your automobile engine, it doesn't become a boat motor. You know, if you it, pour it, something it into the gas working. tank that isn't gasoline, it doesn't become, you know, yeah. Batman, the Batmobile all of a sudden. You know, there's no comic book exactly. magic to it. Exactly. So what, what happens, um, and we see this in, in natural systems very clearly. I'll give you an example of a lake. Uh, that's overwhelmed with like phosphorus all of a sudden. It's given like a, an abundance amount of resources. And what happens is that the plants take over. It ceases to be this organic system with kind of a, a balance between different things, uh, stresses between different creatures. You just give the, the biotic, the plant part, an overwhelming amount of resources and they cease to adapt. They just, you know, take over basically the whole, the whole system and the system becomes complicated not complex. And it's very difficult to phase shift back. Um, it's very difficult to go from complicated back again to complex, to, to, to adaptive. Because what happens is that all those relationships then start to break down. When we look at cities, 
after World War II, and really throughout the Great Depression, we, we, we ramped this up, but after World War II, we really put the energy on this new style of development, this new way we were going to build cities. And we started to look at cities not as complex adaptive systems, but as machines. We can solve all these stresses that we have. We can solve all these, these problems that we struggle with, uh, whether it's noise uh, or air pollution or congestion, human congestion, traffic congestion, whatever it is, we can solve this. We identify these problems and we'll throw a ton of resources at fixing them. And the thing you lose then is you lose that adaptive emergent characteristic. We see very clearly today that our cities are designed to grow. They're designed to replicate a a pattern over and over. I can walk out of the office here and within a few minutes be in a housing subdivision that is going to look identical uh, to a housing subdivision built in Texas, even though we have in three months, it will be 20 below zero here and it will be 80 degrees in Texas. We're completely different environments, but we've essentially now adapted the same complicated strategy. We've lost that emergent structure. And we've done that because of the the resources. And I I think the big question is, as these resources now go away or become stretched, how do our cities respond? In natural ecosystems, what you see is that the complicated, when you shift from complex to complicated, it becomes very fragile. And these systems break. And essentially, there has to be a period of destruction where the existing pattern is destroyed and then something new emerges. We obviously, for many reasons, don't want to go through that. But that's the, that's the situation we're looking at right now is we've created this complicated environment that has lost its ability to adapt and evolve. Okay, so we are sliding into the apocalypse here. So let's turn to chapter two and go to something a little bit happier. Um, We're going to go back and talk about those healthy cities that we were talking about earlier, that when we still had no choice, basically, but to view our cities as our habitat, because we didn't have the resources to engineer them to be something that they naturally couldn't emerge into being on their own. We could build walls, we could build houses, but we couldn't, you know, to take your metaphor of a lake, we couldn't just like dump a ton of chemicals into the lake. We could only do things by tiny fits and starts. And what you named that process in the book, as Strong Towns fans will be familiar with, but let's go back to basics here. You name that process incremental growth. Let's go to 101. Chuck Marone, what is incremental growth and why is it no longer the norm in human society? I think we all can grasp and understand exactly what you just said, which is our dreams were not limited, but our reach was. When Daniel Burnham says, makes no little plans, he's saying, you know, be dreamers, like make huge plans. But when Daniel Burnham said that, and, and really for you know, centuries and, and millennia before him, we can make very grand plans, but we had limited capacity to act on them. Our reach was rather limited. And, and even you can go back to biblical days and you see these, the temple in Jerusalem and the big cities that were being built by, the, by kings and, and by emperors and what have you. These places still took decades and decades and decades to envision, and they required tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of of slave laborers and all these things, these mobilization of huge resources. You look today, 
And we can literally, like in my little hometown, we can envision something and we can bring in the cranes and bring in the earth movers and, and we can change the entire landscape to fit this new vision. Uh, we've got the debt capacity to do it. We've got the technical wherewithal to do it. And so a, a lot of the things that we can dream, we can now all of a sudden do. That was very different than our ancestors. Our ancestors, and, and I'll just reiterate, in the broadest sense of the word, we can go different cultures, different latitudes, different continents, and we see similar things. We're forced to act incrementally. They were forced to take incremental steps. You couldn't go to a frontier town like Brainerd, Minnesota, where I live in the 1870s and build a granite bank with a huge dome ceiling on it and big columns out front. You you couldn't go to a middle of a frontier town and do that because there was a very decent likelihood that that town would go away, that that was going to be in the wrong spot. And you couldn't invest that kind of money there trying to induce that growth because you know what? We could wind up with the you know the new place, the new city, uh, five miles uh, up the river further. There was no reason why it had to be in that location. And so what you see is this very kind of modest, humble, you can think of it almost like a Petri dish growing kind of process where you start with a little bit, little pop-up shacks, humans, you know, aggregate there for all these complex reasons that are, are really hard to pin down. After the fact, we can write our narratives of why this place was successful and that place wasn't. But at the time, when you look at like the two, it's very hard to predict, very hard to understand which one will succeed and which one won't. But one of them does. And then like the Petri dish, it starts to grow. It starts to expand as the economics of the place become more valuable. The old shacks are torn down and, and kind of naturally redeveloped because now the place is, 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 has greater wealth and greater potential. Over time, we do actually see that bank with the, the columns and the, uh, the dome move in and build because now uh, the city is substantial enough to support that kind of investment. Um, you can do that with confidence that the city is going to be around because it's, it's proven it could last for 50 years. So you see this trial and error approach, which we've talked about as, as incremental uh, investment, as incremental development. You see this trial and error approach basically test out and, and prove over time, is this place viable? Is this place uh, going to succeed? And does this place have all of those kind of known and unknown characteristics that are going to justify the next level of investment? And let me just point out, in our modern redux of building cities, uh, we look at, you know, do you make the right investments in your infrastructure systems? Do you have the, the roadway that comes in? Have you uh, upsized your pipe the right way? Do you have the highway interchange? Um, we, we've reduced this down to these complicated set of variables. But when we look at the human habitat and try to predict like what place will succeed and what place won't, sometimes it's things like, did the people get along? Could they work together? Did they have people who were benefactors who came in and helped? Did they have uh, an industry or a, a business that showed up that, that ripped people off and stole their money and set them back? A lot of the reasons why a place succeeds or fails are deeply, deeply human. 
in this complicated way, we try to overcome that. We, when we reduce the city to a machine, we say it's like a car engine. We can say, well, what this place needs is an economic development program that will subsidize manufacturing businesses to come in. And you, you look at it as like a one-dimensional thing. Or what this place needs is a, a, a new lane in the highway to free up congestion and then bam, we're, we're in business. I think what we clearly understand by looking at the past with this kind of humble incremental lens is that a lot of the difference between success and failure came down to these really messy human elements that are intangible and very difficult to define and, and impossible to really predict. It's so true. And, you know, I, I keep coming back to what you, you said earlier in your answer just now about how trial and error was so important to our ancestors' sense of humility that like they can't predict the future. So they're going to, re- to build cautiously and in response to what they know right now, what they think is the best thing to do, but make it reversible, <laughs> make it something that isn't the seventh wonder of the world right now, today, but is in fact going to be something that can adapt and in a more natural way. Are there other ways of describing the incremental development process that like might help someone who thinks incremental means slow understand that we mean something a little bit more complete by that? Yes. But let me, as part of answering that, modify something you said. You talked a little bit about, you know, we can tear this down I want to lean into really the Darwinian part of this, the incrementalism, even though it's a little harsh. And I'm, I'm going to put this out there and then we'll, we'll go back to the fact that I think a big part of what makes play successful is people working together to overcome this. But evolution as a process, incrementalism as a process, is a process of destruction. When I said earlier that evolution is a conservative process, it conserves things at work, you, you start from that, but then you try these different ways of doing things. And the reality is, is the incremental approach is brutal on things that don't work. It destroys them. It chews them up and spits them out. And the thing is, if you're creating a system that you want to be strong and resilient, what you really want to do is you want to learn what is not going to work as soon as possible and at lowest cost as possible. You want to you get to that answer and figure that out right away. Because the longer you, you know, continue on uh, with the idea that you know, we've got all these resources, we can just overcome whatever problem it is. If, if you're on like an evolutionary dead end, uh, you could spend all your resources on this dead end and then wind up at like literally the dead end. Like it doesn't work and now we have no other option. The incremental approach that our ancestors used was designed to test and try things out and essentially learn, would this neighborhood work? Would this new expansion on the edge of the city work? Is our downtown ready to go to the next level? Do we have you know, what it takes to, uh, to, to create this next stage? And so to me, the hubris involved in the way we do things today, where we're very confident in our vision, we're very confident in that we understand the problem. We're very confident that we understand the solution. All we need to do is ABC and we'll solve this problem. People who don't have the luxury of hubris, 
They don't have the luxury of their own, to believe in their own self-confidence because they actually have to pay the, the consequences of their, of their mistakes. They just approach things very differently, very differently. I want to point out one other aspect of this incrementalism um, because yes, it doesn't mean slow. We can go back to the Petri dish metaphor and Petri dishes can grow very slowly. You know, whatever you're growing in a Petri dish, it can also grow very, very quickly, very powerfully, very with a lot of like kinetic energy to it. It's not a matter of fast or slow. Can you handle a great challenge or a small challenge? It's just the number of steps you take to get there. It's the iteration. It's the size. I, I think we have to correlate that size uh, with two things. One, uh, new ideas and innovation. So do we have room for people, cra- I'll say crazy people who don't know they can fail? Do we have room for them to go out and try new things and see if it works? That's what incremental buys you. And then incremental also buys you the corrective action. When you do go out and try new things and see if it works, if it doesn't, you can correct very quickly before getting down that dead end. It has nothing to do with the pace of change. It has nothing to do with an ability to tackle big problems or small problems. Every big problem that's ever been successfully like mediated has ultimately had some type of iterative approach behind it because with all complex adaptive systems, things change over time. Uh, you have to be able to adapt, flex, change, learn, get rid of what's not working, double down on what is. This is what the incremental approach buys you. And it's quite frankly, what our current kind of centralized approach, uh, you know, this, this kind of very simple machine kind of approach uh, lacks. I think that's a great insight. And you, you brought up one word that I think it's, it's time for us to finally turn to, which is what it buys you. <laughs> um, this chapter gets into money a lot more than the previous chapter. It's where you start turning to sort of the core Strong Towns message, which is what is the financial implication of a transformative development pattern? And what are the better financial implications of a incremental development pattern and an incremental approach to growing and building our cities? Let's start with the topic that I think you get into most deeply in the book, which is just land valuation. How did the incremental approach impact the way that we built value on the lands in our cities? And how did that get changed when we move towards a more transformational way of creating places? I'm glad you focus on this because I feel like this is a really important insight that has tons of, of implications. If we think of the very first iteration of any place, a little series of pop-up shacks, you know, maybe a dozen little buildings, people who have, have not seen any of my presentations or, or seen this book at all can think of like a movie set of like Deadwood or something like that, where you've got a little street of little shacks there. When you start in a place like that, it has very little value. In fact, it has little value compared to anything else around it. There's, there's not much that makes it valuable except for the work that the people put in to build these little shacks. But the more the shacks are, are built, the more these tiny little first increment investments are created, the more valuable the place becomes. And we can kind of, for the sake of this conversation, equate place and land value. When a place becomes more valuable, it's actually like the land there becomes more valuable. So take uh, something completely non-developed, and now all of a sudden you go out and you start to put up these little pop-up shacks, even though it's not worth all that much. 
It's worth more than the land around it because now it's starting to become a place. When you do that enough and you do that iteratively over time and you start to create a place where you know commerce is happening, activity is happening, people live, people start to have the human ecosystem, right? The habitat starts to form. The mechanism of redevelopment starts to kick in. So the underlying land values goes up while the little pop-up shack that's on it either holds its value or more than likely because it's a cheap little building starts to fall apart. What happens when that place falls apart? What you look at is you say, okay, now the land value underneath is worth so much more than what it originally was. I'm not going to put in a pop-up shack again. I'm going to put something more substantial. I'm going to put a two-story building or a three-story building. I'm going to make it a little more grand, a little more ornate, a little bit more intense. And all of that is justified by the fact that you've invested more in this place. As this is going on, the city is growing incrementally out. That first iteration is happening out on the edge. But the core starts to essentially churn. And it becomes, as the place grows, more and more valuable. Those rising land values create this natural redevelopment pressure because the further up the land values go, the more intense of a building that can be justified there. We can all think of downtown Manhattan and understand that you're never going to get a pole barn or, or a trailer you know, in downtown Manhattan, the underlying land value is just way too high. It's such an amazing place. And so many people want to be there. There's so much going on that the land value drives these massive, massive investments. Conversely, you can come to my little town of 13,000 and you can see that we have all kinds of vacant lots in the downtown. We have all kinds of properties that are being sold for less than the cost of the infrastructure, so the, the land actually almost has zero value or negative value. No one's ever going to come here and build a 50-story skyscraper. And it's not because there's not the demand here. I mean, there isn't the demand here, but that's not the... The reason is because the underlying land value doesn't justify that level of investment. So in a healthy city, there's a relationship between underlying land values and the investment that's on that land. And as the place starts to aggregate and become more and more of a place, land values go up and it creates this natural redevelopment pressure. Okay, now we're at the Depression and World War II and we start this new development pattern. And the, the one thing that this development pattern has as a core characteristic is it creates access to more and more land. We run highways through the middle of the city. We open up all this land on the edge and we tell people you can uh, live way out here, you know, two miles, five miles, 10 miles out of town, whatever it is. And you can still participate in your job, your church, your school, whatever it is you, you now can because of the power of the automobile. What this does, it does two things. First of all, it opens up the supply of developable land enormously, I mean, exponentially, it creates, instead of incrementally growing out on the edge in a way that strengthens the land values in the core, this just massively opens up the whole expanse around a city and says, you know, we're going to have two times, five times, 10 times the amount of raw land available for development. Here's the second part it does. Anytime you increase the supply of something, 
but you hold demand steady or maybe even increase demand by a little bit, what you do is you drop the price. And so all of a sudden, all of these traditional cities, all of these core neighborhoods, the land value underneath them just collapsed. That natural redevelopment cycle went away. And what we see is that we all remember and, and, and have studied and looked at how cities got gutted out, um, how people left, how these investments stagnated, even where you had beautiful brick, you know, granite, gorgeous buildings, we tore them down and we tore them down because they were worthless in our eyes then. And, and not worthless because the bricks didn't have value or the building didn't have value, but the underlying land had no value, had very little value. And so the, the investment on it was almost like disproportionate to that value. In fact, tearing down a building and returning it to land, at least you'd pay lower taxes and at least you could then rent it out for people to park on. This massive devaluation of the underlying land values of cities was a direct result of the, the development pattern that we initiated on this broad scale after World War II. When you look at it today, we have become very used to, it's always been bizarre to me how comfortable we are with tax increment financing and tax abatements and different things to essentially arrest decline. We've become comfortable with decline as a normal condition of cities. And this is not true. Yes, cities would decline in the past. I'm not saying every city was always eternally successful, but they would not decline the way ours declined. They would decline as a whole. The whole city would decline kind of together. And you can think of it as cities of the past could not collapse, but they could slowly bleed to death because they had this internal kind of value framework, this ecosystem that had this internal strength. And if you slowly kind of denuded it, you could over time kind of starve it, but you were never going to collapse it. What we see today is that whole neighborhoods collapse in like a decade, in a generation. We'll have neighborhoods that are successful and then come back 20 years later and buildings are boarded up, things are falling apart. Uh, we've got to inject huge tax subsidies to jumpstart things, to, to return lots to uh, what we call like, you know, pre-development conditions so that they can compete with the, the new stuff we have on, on the edge. What we've done is we have massively devalued place as part of our public policy that has short circuited this natural redevelopment cycle. And because of that, we now have to go back in and artificially subsidize new growth and development to arrest the decline that we have in a sense created. And, and this is kind of the, I think the big departure from this complex adaptive ecosystem of human habitat and our new genetic growth machine kind of way of building cities today. It all kind of sounds like, hmm, a bad party. <laughs> so let's talk. Yeah, bad let's party. talk about the party analogy that ends this chapter. And that'll that'll be our, our sort of before our wrap-up question. So last question, warning. Um, what is the party analogy? Strong Towns fans will be really familiar with it, but I think you put go into a little bit more depth here. Um, and why do we need to get back to a good party uh, if we want our cities to be strong? I have one regret about this in the book. I had a note in the draft I submitted that uh, acknowledged Ian Rasmussen, our board member, 
And that note did not make it into the final copy. And I'm, I'm not sure where it got lost. I didn't notice it got lost. Um, but I went back and retraced it because this is his idea. This is his insight. And you can imagine Ian and I sitting in his place in Queens, uh, Forest Hills, New York. He's drinking wine and talking into a podcast. And he's like, let me tell you how cities are like a good party. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to, yeah, I want to acknowledge Ian because Ian is, Ian is a guy who enjoys a good party. So this is his kind of way of describing things. When we look at that pop-up shack city, one of the things we recognize right away is that there wasn't that much going on. They didn't have paved streets. They didn't have sewer and water. They didn't have a public library. They didn't have a fire department. They probably didn't have a sheriff. I don't know. Maybe they did. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't much going on. It was very kind of startup-y kind of place. But over time, as more and more people showed up, they were capable of doing more and more things. A bunch more people move in. All of a sudden, hey, we got enough people to have a bucket brigade if something catches on fire. More and more people come in and you're like, you know what? Uh, we can hire that sheriff now and we can collectively pay for that person. And so using Ian's party analogy, Ian suggests it's like this. He said, imagine you're throwing a party and everyone who shows up brings more food and more drink to the party than they themselves consume what would you do with your party? Well, you would open the door as wide as possible. You would say, everybody come in. Everybody who comes in just makes the party better. All of a sudden there's more food, there's more drink, there's more people hanging out, there's more stuff going on. It's a, it's a better party. Just open up the door wide. What happens though, if you throw a party and everybody who shows up eats and drinks more than they bring? As your party is proceeding, everybody who shows up is making your party worse. You're, you're running out of liquor. You're running out of uh, food. This is bad. What do you do? Y you shut the door. You, you bar the door. You don't let anybody in. You don't want anybody to come and be part of your party. If we look at traditional development patterns, it had all the characteristics of a great party. Everybody who showed up gave us more capacity to do things, provided us with a bigger platform uh, for success, a way to add to our quality of life, a, a way to add to everything that was positive about our community. So open the door wide open, invite people in. We, we want you to come. When we look today at like a suburban neighborhood, we go in and we build everything to a finished state. Uh, we put in all the paved roads. We put in the sidewalks. We put in the streetlights. Uh, we put in the park. We've got the library. We've, we, we, we have police protection and fire protection. We put all these things in place when they come in and then it's done. And then we go back and we say, okay, well, now we're going to develop the, the next, the next cornfield up the road from you. And what happens? They all show up and say, we don't want that. We don't want any of that. We don't want to have to share the park with more people. We don't want to have more people driving on the streets. We don't, we don't have to fight with more people for parking spots. The development pattern we have today is emblematic of a bad party. Everybody who shows up actually makes the party worse for everyone who's there now. And the only counter argument to that, that we see city officials making is if you don't allow for this new growth, if you don't allow for this next iteration, if we can't find a neighborhood that will take this apartment building or this three-story condo or, you know, whatever it is we're trying to like shove down people's throats, if you can't take it, we're going to go broke and not be able to do anything. That's a bad party. It's a bad party. We have to start thinking about cities as complex adaptive environments 
as human habitat. You got to start restoring those connections between people and having those connections and, and that kind of having the door wide open result in people's lives getting better. That's how we restore a good party. And, and that's in a sense, uh, what I think we try to get to towards the, the latter parts of the book is how do we establish that framework where we can start throwing a good party again instead of this really diseased one that we've created? Well, I am really excited to hear you go on to chapter three and start party planning something pretty cool. Um, I think that you did an incredible job in these first two chapters, Chuck, I must say, of redefining what a human being is, why human beings have built in this way um, for as long as we have, why we turned away from building in a strong development pattern. And I just can't wait to go on the journey with you for the rest of these podcasts and to watch other people go on the journey with you through the book to figure out how to make our cities strong again, to an unfortunate phrase. Who have you got on deck to talk with you about chapter three? I don't remember. I think that uh, that Jacob and I do that a little bit. I know John and I chatted about four and five. I'm not going to spoil our surprise. We have a surprise guest who does one of these later on. Oh, it's a good surprise. Um, yeah, so, I know you're about. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great surprise. Yeah. Over the course of this week, we're going to haul in a, a whole bunch of people to kind of walk us through these different parts and push me a little bit and uh, and have a good conversation about it. So yeah, this is, this is going to be a fun week. I'm really, really excited to see how it all goes. Well, thank you so much for listening into this very special episode of the Strong Towns podcast and UpZone. We're going to run it on both channels. And if you are enjoying learning about this book in depth, you're going to like reading it even more, let me tell you. And we have all kinds of ways that you can engage deeper with this message, share it with more people, and deliver the Strong Towns approach to folks who really just prefer to read between two covers. So log on to strongtowns.org slash strongamerica, as well as strongtowns.org slash the book, I believe is our URL right now. We got a definite article in there um, to learn a lot more. And thank you so much for hanging with us for this special episode and doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Keith. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.